Chapter Eleven of Benjamin Franklin by Robin McCown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Terrible Hutchinson Letters. At sixty-seven, Franklin had an expression at once benign, kindly, and humorous. His years in England had subtly altered his appearance and his manner. He dressed with elegance in a smooth wig and fashionable ruffles, and he was equally at ease with eleven-year-old Kitty Shipley or the King's ministers during the london season he set out each afternoon in his coach often with temple his lively grandson to leave his card or pay calls on members of parliament or other influential persons whom he wished to win over to the american cause in the year seventeen seventy three he was most concerned with the threat of the british troops still stationed in boston three years after the boston massacre wherever he thought it might help he argued the folly of treating bostonians like troublesome children i am in perpetual anxiety lest the mad measure of mixing soldiers among a people whose minds are in such a state of irritation may be attended with some sudden mischief he wrote his boston correspondent thomas cushing one day during a conversation on this subject a british gentleman of character and distinction told him that he was wrong to blame the english for the troops in boston they had been requested by some of his most respectable fellow-countrymen franklin was incredulous the gentleman then turned over to him some letters written between seventeen sixty seven and seventeen sixty nine by two massachusetts crown officers both native americans thomas hutchinson and andrew oliver in effect it was as franklin had been told hutchinson and oliver too pleaded of england a firm hand even armed forces to keep order they demanded for massachusetts an abridgment of what are called english liberties by the time franklin read these letters oliver was lieutenant governor of massachusetts and thomas hutchinson was governor hutchinson had as an excuse that his house had been ransacked during the stamp act furor this did not alter that he had been undermining the work of colonial agents and betraying the very people he had been chosen to govern in his position as agent for massachusetts franklin knew he must warn their assembly after some reflection he sent the letters to thomas cushing asking that they be returned to him after cushing and members of the assembly committee of correspondence a small and trusted group had studied them he further explained that he could not reveal the source of the letters and that he was not at liberty to make them public he had no scruples about showing the letters since they were political not personal but he had to protect the gentlemen of distinction who had entrusted them with him in due time the letters reached cushing who followed franklin's instructions neither cushing nor anyone else who saw the letters could prevent their being talked about in june seventeen seventy three samuel adams one of the most ardent of boston patriots read them to a secret session of the massachusetts assembly some one took the responsibility of having them copied and printed in the public uproar that ensued the assembly prepared a petition to the king to remove both hutchinson and oliver from office perhaps it was for the best franklin decided when the news reached him without reproaches he wrote cushing that he was grateful his own name had not been mentioned though i hardly expect it he only hoped that the letter's publication would not occasion some riot of mischievous consequence 
he was continuing his own methodical and unrelenting pressure to bring reason to the english government in september seventeen seventy three an anonymous and stinging satire appeared in the public advertiser under the title rules by which a great empire may be reduced to a small one among the rules cited were forget that their colonies were founded at the expense of the colonists resent their importance to the empire suppose them always inclined to revolt and treat them accordingly choose inferior rapacious and pettifogging men for governors and judges in the provinces and reward these men for having governed badly in all the rules encompassed every fault and folly of which england was guilty in its treatment of the american colonies ministers and members of parliament could not doubt that the peace came from the quill pen of benjamin franklin it was followed by an even more devastating attack on british policy edict by the king of prussia frederick the great of prussia the edict announced was now taking up his claims on the province of great britain which had been settled originally by german colonists and had never been emancipated hence the prussian government had the right to exact revenue from its british colonies to lay duties on all goods they exported or imported to forbid all manufacturing in these colonies from now on should the british need hats they must send raw materials to prussia which would manufacture the hats and let the british purchase them this was exactly the manner in which the british were preventing american manufacture next prussia planned to ship to the island of great britain all the thieves highway and street robbers housebreakers and murderers whom they do not think fit here to hang here franklin returned to an old grievance britons using the colonies as a dumping-ground for convicts in seventeen fifty one he had proposed tongue-in-cheek to send american rattlesnakes to england in exchange he was visiting lord le despensee when a servant brought to the breakfast-table the newspaper which had printed the edict hoax a fellow-guest named paul whitehead read the first paragraphs and exploded here is the king of prussia claiming a right to this kingdom i dare say we shall hear by next post that he is upon his march with one hundred thousand men to back this franklin kept a straight face whitehead read on until as absurdities piled up it dawned on him that he had been taken i'll be hanged franklin if this is not some of your american jokes upon us they admitted he had made his point very cleverly and all had a good laugh but neither the rules nor the edict persuaded parliament and the ministry to change their ways colonial resentment focused on the tax on tea which small as it was remained a splinter in the unhealed wound in boston on december sixteenth seventeen seventy three fifty citizens dressed as mohawk indians defiantly dumped three hundred and forty two chests of british tea into the ocean parliament when the news reached london acted swiftly until restitution was made for the tea the port of boston was to be closed four more regiments under general thomas gage were sent to keep order boston became an occupied city unable to conduct its commerce and faced with financial ruin pay for the tea franklin urged his boston colleagues the boston tea party was an act of lawlessness which could only harm the cause of the colonies 
just as the colonists were unaware of the problems that faced him daily in england so he was too far away to appreciate the fire of indignation that was sweeping america in the meantime a scandal erupted in london as a result of the publication of governor hutchinson's letters two gentlemen william waitley and john temple had each accused the other of making the letters public they carried the argument to the newspapers and then temple challenged waitley to a duel it was fought at hyde park on december eleventh with pistols and swords waitley was wounded neither party was satisfied franklin was out of town when the duel took place after he heard about it he realized what he had to do on christmas day a letter signed by him appeared in the public advertiser which said that both waitley and temple were ignorant and innocent of the publication of the hutchinson letters that he was the one who had obtained them and sent them to boston the entire blame was his he did not give the name of the man who had turned the letters over to him this secret he carried to his grave how many high-placed persons in england were waiting to get something on this imperturbable philadelphian how many resented the way like socrates gadfly he forced them to admit what they did not want to admit and pestered them eternally with his troublesome colonies now they would have their revenge franklin knew his admission would bring wrath on his head he had not long to wait on january twenty ninth seventeen seventy four he was summoned to the cockpit tavern to a meeting of the king's privy council for plantation affairs the subject given was the petition of the massachusetts assembly for the removal from office of andrew oliver and governor hutchinson franklin's friends had informed him already that the petition was to be denied there were even rumors that his papers might be seized and himself thrown in prison he was prepared for the worst he arrived on time dressed in a suit of figured manchester velvet wearing an old-fashioned curled wig and carrying the same cane with which he had once quieted the ripples on the stream at lord shelburne's estate thirty-six members of the privy council were seated around a large table among them were the archbishop of canterbury the bishop of london the duke of queensbury lord dartmouth whom he had found sympathetic lord hillsborough who hated and feared him and the earl of sandwich from whom the word sandwich was derived the london head of the post office a conceited individual who disliked everything that franklin stood for among them franklin could be positive of only one friend lord le Despensay. a few spectators had been admitted including joseph priestley the scientist and edmund burke the irish peer they stood behind the table since there were no extra chairs no one offered franklin a chair either for the entire hearing he stood by the fireplace facing the councillors it opened with a reading of the massachusetts petition and of the hutchinson and oliver letters franklin's lawyer john dunning appealed to the king's wisdom and goodness to favor the petition and remove the two men from their posts as a gesture to quiet colonial unrest then alexander wedderburn lawyer for hutchinson took over his speech which lasted an hour was from beginning to end a tirade against franklin franklin could have got hold of the controversial letters only by fraudulent or corrupt means he said 
his own letter clearing waitley and temple of blame was impossible to read without horror franklin was a receiver of goods dishonorably come by he had duped the innocent well-meaning farmers of the massachusetts assembly wedderburn's accusations grew wilder as he warmed to his subject franklin wanted to become governor himself he stated categorically that was why he had taken on himself to furnish materials for dissensions to set at variance the different branches of the legislature and to irritate and incense the minds of the king's subjects against the king's governor while wedderburn continued to spew forth his poisonous invective franklin stood stoically his face impassive seemingly unaware either of the triumphal smirks of his enemies or the compassionate glances of his friends people agreed later that his silence in the face of the screams of his adversary showed him the stronger man when the hearing was over he went quietly home alone he made no answer to wedderburn nor even to those closest to him did he indicate that the attack rankled to thomas cushing he wrote splashes of dirt thrown upon my character i suffered while fresh to remain i did not choose to spread by endeavouring to remove them but relied on the vulgar adage that they would all rub off when they were dry the day after the hearing he was notified of his dismissal as deputy postmaster-general of the colonies this was a severe blow for he had prided himself on the efficient work he had done in this service then on february seventh seventeen seventy four the king formally rejected the massachusetts assembly petition to remove hutchinson and oliver seemingly franklin's usefulness as a provincial agent was ended he thought of going home but decided against it critical days were ahead he felt he might still in spite of his disgrace find ways of helping his country except that he had no direct dealings with the ministry or parliament his life went on as before he discussed scientific matters with joseph priestley among them the phenomenon of marsh gas when polly hewson's husband died leaving her with three children he grieved with and for her he worried lest william be removed from the governorship of new jersey as further punishment to him but this did not happen in september seventeen seventy four a dark-haired youngish man who spoke in the quaker manner paid him a visit his name was thomas paine he said he was fascinated by franklin's work in electricity and gave evidence of being well informed himself on scientific matters he had also done a bit of writing particularly a quite elegant petition to parliament on the plight of the excisemen a petition that had cost him his own job in the excise service he had a dream of going to america Payne confided would dr franklin be good enough to give him some advice franklin rarely refused such requests in this case he was sufficiently impressed to write a note of recommendation to his son-in-law richard Bache he could not guess the enormous favor he was doing his homeland by sending thomas paine to america's shores massachusetts had rejected franklin's advice to pay for the boston tea party other colonies were coming to the rescue of beleaguered boston connecticut sent flocks of sheep from virginia came flour south carolina gave rice franklin was delighted at last the colonies were helping each other nearly twenty years after he had proposed a union at the albany conference 
when the first continental congress met in philadelphia in may seventeen seventy four he was full of praise for the coolness temper and firmness of the american proceedings and he was all in favor of a strong boycott of british manufacturers if america would save for three or four years the money she spends in fashions and fineries and fopperies of this country she might buy the whole parliament ministers and all at last his beloved colonies were learning the value of concerted and dignified action so much more effective in his thinking than mob actions as the crisis deepened one by one important statesmen sought him out and almost humbly asked his advice as to what they should do the great william pitt summoned him in august did he think the colonists would go as far as to ask for independence franklin assured him truthfully that he had never heard in any conversation from any person drunk or sober the least expression of a wish for a separation or hint that such a thing would be advantageous to america he received an invitation to play chess with the sister of admiral lord richard howe at their second session miss howe pressed him to tell her what should be done to settle the dispute between great britain and the colonies they should kiss and be friends he said lightly nor would he be more explicit when she brought admiral lord howe to talk with him in his heart he knew it was now too late to repair the many blunders on the part of parliament and the king on december eighteenth seventeen seventy four he received the declaration of rights and grievances a petition from the first continental congress to george the third the king who was having the first of those attacks which would end in insanity ignored it completely with william pitt admiral lord howe and other of the more reasonable officials franklin spent long hours trying to work out a compromise that would keep the peace it was all in vain in the midst of these labors word reached him that his faithful debbie had died of a stroke on december nineteenth the day after the arrival of the petition there would be no more of her warm and loving and atrociously spelled letters to keep him informed about his relatives i don't know whether you have been told that cousin benny mickham and his lovely wife and five dafters is come here to live and work journey work i had them to dine and drink tea yesterday or to lament the lack of news from him i have been very much distressed about you as i did not get one letter nor one word from you nor did i hear one word from anybody that you wrote to so i must submit and endeavor to submit to what i am to bear letters which she might sign your affectionate wife or when she was less careful your affectionate wife he would miss them but above all he would miss the assurance that she was there waiting for him loyal and cheerful to greet him whenever he returned from his long voyage he stayed on in england only a few months longer his last day in london he spent with joseph priestley together they read papers from america and now and then tears ran down franklin's cheeks he was sure america would win if there were a war he told priestley but it would take at least ten years on march twenty fifth seventeen seventy five he and his grandson temple embarked on the pennsylvania packet the crossing took six weeks and the weather was pleasant in the first half of it 
he wrote out the complicated story of his recent dealings with the ministry in his last futile and desperate efforts to prevent war the last part of the journey he devoted to studying the nature of the gulf stream taking its temperature two to four times a day and noting that its water had a special color of its own and that it does not sparkle in the night thus he was able to enjoy a brief interlude in the world of nature between the bitter disputes he left behind and the struggle that lay ahead End of chapter eleven